All right, everyone, very excited about today's episode that we are titling Escape from Wall Street. I, depending on, on on how much we're actually able to cover, it, it may be one show or two shows on two sequential days, but it's going to be an incredible value add. We are so fortunate to have Rick Ferry chatting with us today. Uh, and we're going to try to accomplish a couple things over, over this series of shows. One, the title of the episode, Escape from Wall Street. Rick Ferry, that was his background and very intentionally and largely motivated by uh, by the information that Jack Bogle was putting into the universe and his own research. He kind of became one of these early vanguards for the vanguard, you know, aptly <laughs> named for the type of investing that we get so passionate about index fund investing. Uh, he's written at least seven books at this point. I'm sure he has more in the works. Uh, and we're really benefiting from the deep level of research that he has done. And the way that he's been able to engage the DIY investor community around this idea, um, it's made it very accessible. So we're going to kind of take a look back at his backstory and why he is here today, but then also take a timely look at index fund investing for someone starting now in 2020, maybe potentially starting as the market has taken a, a 30% tumble or more. And so I think there's going to be a lot of value here for our community. To help me with this, I have my co-host Brad here with me today. How you doing, buddy? Hey, Jonathan, I am doing quite well. Yeah, I'm extremely excited to talk to Rick. Uh, he is part of the Bogleheads community. He runs the Boglehead podcast. And of course, for those astute listeners out there, Bogleheads is named after John Bogle, basically the patron saint of index fund investing. So uh, I'm just so fascinated by this concept. It has really revolutionized my entire investing life. And I just can't wait to talk to Rick about maybe the history of this, where it's been and where it's going, right? As, as we're in uncertain times, certainly. So with that, Rick, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thank, thank you so much for having me on. I appreciate you asking me, Brad and Jonathan. Well, we're excited to have you here. And I think where I'd like to start is really this, this intersection between Rick Ferry, aspiring Wall Street Broker, right? And uh, Jack <laughs> I don't know Bogle. About that. <laughs> <laughs> Take us back in time here. How do you go? Like, what gets us from Wall Street to really leading the charge on the power of index fund investing? Well, okay. So the backstory is what you're asking for. Uh, so I'll give you the the, the nickel version of uh, how I got to the point of I had my aha moment and became a disciple, if you will, of uh, indexing and Jack Bogle's. Uh, this is how it worked. I, my undergraduate degree it was in business administration. And uh, when I graduated in 1980 from the University of Rhode Island, I went into the Marine Corps and I went as an officer, went to Quantico. And from there, I went down to Pensacola, Florida and became a, a pilot. It was a, a jet pilot. I, I flew off aircraft carriers. I did a lot of stuff, a couple of overseas tours uh, in the infantry for a year as well. But I uh, had married uh, two children, one on the way. Last time I came back from being overseas, uh, I walked into the hangar with all the other pilots and my wife was pregnant with our third child at the time. And, and I had one son who was about five and another son who was two and a half. And my wife pointed at me and as I was walking towards them, of course, all these guys in green flight suits were walking towards their family. And she goes, that's your father. That's your father. <laughs> and, so, and so my five-year-old recognized me and he comes running up uh, my two and a half year old had no idea who I was. He hid behind his mother. Uh, he was scared. 
Um, and I looked at him and I, I never forget the look on his face. And I, and we had number three in the oven at that time. I said, I, I'm not going to do this anymore. You know, I could get out and go in the reserves, which is what I did. And I finished my 20 years in the reserves, which is why I wear the Marine Corps, uh, retired, uh, shirt here. But, um, I, uh, I decided to get out. And so when I was looking around of what I was going to do, I decided I didn't want to go to the airlines. I decided to pursue a career in finance, and that took me to Wall Street. And I was hired by a small company called Kidder Peabody. And so I went to work at Kidder Peabody, and I began to, I went through their broker boot camp. I took their Series 7 exam and everything I was supposed to do. I really believe that brokers were uh, investment analysts. I mean, I confused investment analysts and investment researchers with brokers. I thought they were the same thing uh, at the time, but, but found out relatively soon that they were not. And so once I got into the brokerage world as a, as a basically they t- try to teach you how to sell and they want you to sell whatever it is they're trying to sell at that particular day. Uh, I, I realized that I need to, I really need to get an education about what this is all about. So all of the big portfolio managers were, uh, had a designation called a chartered financial analyst CFA. And it was run by the CFA Institute. It was a, very long three-year grueling sort of academic self-study program, a very low pass rate. You had to pass three different exams. But I decided to put myself through that, and uh, I did. And it was difficult, but I I did it in three years. So I passed all three exams, one, two, three, which was uh, quite an accomplishment, I understand. And then uh, I went out and I got my uh, master's of science in finance. So I began to study quantitative analysis and finance and all that. And what I was looking for was, Look, if I'm supposed to be an analyst and I'm supposed to be some investment guru expert, if that's what people think I am because I'm a broker, I mean, I should do that. I mean, that's what I, I need to do. So as I was studying all this stuff and analyzing all this stuff and looking at all the different money managers and using different money managers for my clients and keeping track of all this, I had a very in-depth, detailed um, analysis program. It was about a 10,000-word scripted program that I wrote in an old program called Quattro Pro, which was a old spreadsheet, but a programmable spreadsheet program. I wrote this, I wrote this program and, and I tried to do, to analyze how I would figure out, you know, which money managers and which funds and how are you going to outperform the market? Well, it turns out it did exactly the opposite. I came to the, the realization that this is mostly randomness and, and most people don't outperform the market. And trying to outperform the market is very difficult. Uh, you don't have much information. You don't have any information that anybody else has. And I was very distraught by this. Uh, I ended up leaving Kidder Peabody after five years and going to Smith Barney because they had the premier analysis program. They had a bunch of PhDs and CFAs, and I mean, they, they were 10 times the size of a Kidder Peabody. So I went there. I thought, well, this is it. I'm, I'm now in the group that uh, these, are all the, these are all the brilliant people are. And, uh, <clears throat> well... No, it didn't change. <laughs> it didn't make any difference. I mean, the probability of picking managers that were going to outperform or picking mutual funds that are going to outperform was still very low. Um, and of course, the stock picking ability of the Smith Barney analysts were no better than the stock picking ability of any Wall Street analyst. And so I kept track of all of this. Um, and and now I'm like eight years in and I am distraught. I mean, I, think, I, I don't want to be in this industry. This is just, we're telling the clients that you know, we're great and that we can outperform and, and that they should invest with us and that we know things that can make them money. And it just was not true. 
So uh, I, I didn't know whether to, to leave the industry and maybe become a commercial airline pilot or just do something else, but I just couldn't stay there. Um, and I thought I was all alone. So that was the thing. I thought I was, uh, I thought, I thought it was just me, uh, but I turned around and I, I, I listened to this fellow speak in 1996. Uh, his name was Jack Bogle, and he was the well, he was a former chairman of the Vanguard Group of Mutual Funds. Uh, Jack Bogle had had just resigned as the chairman because he had a heart problem. In fact, he had a heart transplant, and he had just come after his heart transplant about four months later. It was the first time he was speaking, and it was a CF, CFA Institute annual conference in Atlanta, and I was listening to him talk, and I was mesmerized. I said, my, this guy knows something. He knows like what I know. I mean, he's talking about all these things that I'm seeing every day, and he had wrote this book called Bogle on Mutual Funds. So I said, I got to get this book. So I went out and I bought the book. Finally, it took me a while to get it. I had read every other book there was at Barnes and Noble. I mean, I've read everything. I think I went to the conference in the spring. I bought the book and it sat on my shelf for a while. I, I pulled the book off the shelf in mid-October 1996. I remember because my children at the time my, uh, uh, were, were young teenagers and they were going through the uh, house of horrors, local house of horrors. And I was in the parking lot and waiting for them to be done. And it was nighttime and I'm here, this chainsaw is going off and people screaming and yelling. And I'm reading this book and I swear, I mean, I started yelling and screaming in, in the car. <laughs> I was like, I, this is exactly what I'm seeing. And it, he was describing my feelings exactly about what was going on on Wall Street and how it was all a lot of smoke and mirrors and, and that it wasn't the way you should be investing. It was exactly what I was seeing. And, I was, and I, it was a relief because I was not alone. I realized that there was a group of people out there, a group of very smart people who thought the way that, that I did. And, and there wasn't much documentation about this. There wasn't much written about this. Uh, this was one of the first books, if not the first books on index funds that was written. And I, and I, I had a chemical reaction in my brain. It was, a, it was my aha moment. And I realized that I was doing it all wrong. And I was approaching investing all wrong. And that these are the public markets. And what I should be doing for my clients is I should be using index funds. And so that was the epiphany. Yeah, that's that's fascinating. I, I think so many people genuinely believe that you need some significant knowledge to to invest in the stock market, or there's some man or woman who, like you, has has studied for years and has and knows all this insider information, and like that's the way to succeed. But you're saying on the inside of of this industry, you were looking at the math. Right. That is what you were really diving into. And you're saying, like, this doesn't make any sense. I mean, can you can you describe like do you I know you said relief that I was not alone and that really stuck with me. Like, do you think there were other people at, at your company that saw this or was was it more like a, you know, <laughs> do you ask a barber if they need if you need a haircut, you're going to get one answer. Do you ask a someone inside of a, a big investing firm if you need specialized information? you know what the answer is. Like, you know, talk us through that and then maybe like reversion to the mean, how like, you know, certain certain people seem to outperform, but over the long run, which is how we think, it all kind of comes back to that to that average. So let me start with what was going on in the company because I did this, bring this to the attention of several people. And one of the people I brought it to the attention of uh, one of them used to be a, a senior executive at, a, at another Wall Street firm that 
uh, ended up being acquired by Smith Barney. But um, I, I went to him and I, I was telling him this, and he was bought out of that other firm for millions, millions of dollars, uh, many millions of dollars. So uh, I went to him and I asked him, and, and his response to me was, look, don't tell anybody, but I have all of my money in S&P 500 Spiders uh, ETF. He says, they're great. I mean, he said, they, you know, just track the market is all you have to do. Now, this is a person who was, I mean, literally CEO level of a very large Wall Street firm and telling me that he personally had all his money in an S&P 500 (laughs) index fund. (laughs) But of course, you know, that wasn't for me to go around telling everybody in the company. The next thing that happened was I went to my boss. He is a very straight shooter. And I had a, um, you know, it was a first name basis uh, with with him at the time. And I said to him, let's create something at Smith Barney really unique. Let's go to Vanguard and let's contract with them or partner with them. And let's offer to our Smith Barney uh, clients the ability to use Vanguard index funds, which you couldn't use in the brokerage in- industry at the time because they weren't available. And even now, they're, they're only available through basically exchange-traded funds. And <laughs> he basically said, Ferry, who do you think you work for? <laughs> I said, well, I'd like to think I work for the client, I told him. Wrong answer. <laughs> I work for the shareholders. Anyway, and then he basically said that, um, you know, because Vanguard was not going to pay Smith Barney to distribute their funds and Smith Barney was not going to you know, use Vanguard because all these other fund companies were willing to pay Smith Barney a lot of money to distribute their mutual funds. And it was all about the bottom line to the shareholders of Smith Barney, which, you know, that's understandable. So uh, he, I said, look, this is something I have to do. And this is like 1997. He says, look, Rick, good luck. And which meant if you have to go, if you have to do it, go do it. So I, I started to plan my escape from Smith Barney, and that was uh, 1997, and they actually did leave in uh, 1999 to start my own uh, low-cost management company. But I had a two-year contract that I had to fulfill. So that's what happened uh, after my, uh, my aha moment. But to your point about regression to the mean and all the data, what the data was showing, uh, very, very difficult to use past performance to try to predict future returns. In fact, there's really no evidence that if a money manager or a mutual fund outperform in the past, that it's going to outperform going forward. It's, it's a random event. In other words, if you take the winning funds and you say, okay, well, these are the winning funds over the last five years. How did they perform over the next five years? They om- it's almost a, uh, an even distribution between bottom 25%, um, next to the bottom 25%, uh, upper 75%, 25%, and then the top 25%. It just distributes out almost perfectly. In other words, it's all randomness, what happens over the next five years. Um, and it happens that way with every single asset class, whether it's stocks or bonds or whether it's uh, international stocks. It, it, you can't use past performance to predict future returns. You can in some way use fees to predict future return, which means that the funds with the highest fees generally are at the bottom. But after that, it it's a pretty random. So you know, I tried everything I could to try to predict performance. I looked at every study there was to try to predict mutual fund performance. And there, there is some indication that things like uh, how much skin in a game a manager has may have something to do with how much of their own money 
they have in a fund may have something to do with performance. Where they went to college may have something to do with performance. But uh, because of their contacts and their networking and all that, but, but it's so sketchy. It's, re- it's really difficult. So in the end, you're better off just buying the market because the fees are low and you get a better rate of return. It's bottom line. So let's, let's talk about that. So, you know, th- this was your aha moment. You decided to walk away and just do this on your own. You're going to create it, you know, from what you want the system to look like for yourself and for your clients. You're going to create it from the ground up. What did that end up looking like for you in this next chapter? So I left in 1999 after I had my five-year commitment done. Uh, luckily, I had some money set aside, and I had some Citigroup stock options. Smith Barney was owned by Citigroup at the time. And so I cashed everything in, and uh, I went took my living room. I took an old desk that I basically picked out of the trash when I was in the Marine Corps. It was a nice old desk, and I put it in my living room, and I set up a Costco table, uh, which my wife sat at to do paperwork for my clients. And now we're in business. It was uh, basically um, a small money management company. And we were going to manage client portfolios using index funds and uh, some exchange traded funds. We had to have a custodian. So I chose Charles Schwab at first to be my custodian for my clients. I wanted the low fee. And so I said, I'm going to charge my clients a quarter of a percent per year, 0.25% per year fee to manage their portfolios. Now, wait till I come up with 0.25. Well, if you were to use a company called American Funds, which is a big mutual fund company, they're an actively managed fund company, but uh, uh, they have a lot of different types of funds. If, if when I was a broker, if I put a million dollars into American Funds, and I diversified it across these different American funds as a broker, a million dollars. So I bought uh, American funds, bond funds, stock funds, international funds, and it was a full million dollars. I, I would get on an ongoing basis, uh, the client would pay no commission and no front end load to do that. And what I would get on an ongoing basis is a quarter of a percent 12B1 fee. That's what I would get. So I thought to myself, okay, what is that 12B1 fee for? So I talked to the American funds rep when I was a broker and I was planning this whole company. And he said, well, we at American funds believe that that 12B1 fee, that 20.25% that you get or your company gets, and you get a piece of that is to keep the client informed, help them with their asset allocation, do rebalancing, maybe move the money around when it needs to be moved and to service the clients and just, you know, be an advisor to them. And we think that a quarter of a percent management fee to do that or is, is, is the right amount. And I said, you know what? I think so too. So when I left and I started the indexing co- uh, company, I said, I'm going to use that quarter of a percent. But instead of using American funds, I'm just going to use index funds. And so that's what I did. I created these portfolios of index funds and some exchange traded funds. And I used some DFA funds from a company called Dimensional Fund Advisors. And I, uh, I used Charles Schwab as the custodian. And I charged a quarter of a percent per year management fee to implement those portfolios and maintain them and talk to the clients and do what I thought was the right thing as an advisor. And that is um, how I got started. So Rick, I actually want to uh, spend a little bit a little bit of time here just because you were kind of piloting something that hadn't really been seen before. No one had kind of paired this very light-handed AUM model with 
the power of index fund investing. And as you are kind of noticing, like active management is hit or miss and past performance is not in any way indicative of future performance. In fact, like the longer you seem to be with someone, the worse it seems to get. So, but here you are, you're creating something from the ground up. You kind of have this light-handed approach to an AUM model and people haven't really heard of this before. And I'm just curious, like what was the trajectory of this business and were there any really large inflection points as <laughs> you started to kind of pilot this? Yeah, well, at first it, I, I just went to my current clients that I had as a broker and 80% of them moved over, uh, you know, and I, I took over management, Every, everything was good. Uh, I had published my first book uh, called Serious Money, Straight Talk About Investing for Retirement, and self-published that, and that that was good. Uh, but I was moving along, and I was getting some new clients, and you know, again, working out in my living room with my wife, and, and that was all good. I had this vision of maybe getting a couple of hundred million under management, making five hundred thousand dollars revenue, and you know, walking away actually with about four hundred thousand. Uh, of profit, and that, that would have been great, um, you know, income. But what happened was a fellow by the name of Jonathan Clemens from the Wall Street Journal contacted me one day, and he said, "Hey, this is Jonathan Clements of the Wall Street Journal. I hear you're managing money for a quarter of a percent per year, and you're putting people in all index funds." Well, first of all, I couldn't believe it was the Wall Street Journal contacting me, but I said, "Yeah, that that's correct. That that's what I'm doing." He goes, "Well, tell me about it." So I did. And it gets on the it gets on the front page of section C one of the Wall Street Journal, and for three months the phone rings off the hook. I, I was just inundated with with people who thought that's that that this is what they were wanted to do. So I'm, you know, going nuts trying to get information out, trying to bring in clients, trying to service things, and and we just. I ended up having uh, hired a couple of people. I brought on my first business partner. We ended up getting office space. I mean, it just exploded. It exploded. And so at the end of this, so recently, I know you're not, you are not still with this business. That's something that you've kind of walked away from as you start this next chapter. But when you walked away and sold that aspect of your business, how assets under management, I mean, how, what were you managing? What was the volume that you were managing? Yeah, we got all the way up to uh, 1.5 billion in assets uh, and before we, before I uh, left the company, All right, it, now, one, it, it, it grew quite a bit. Yeah, that's, that's incredible. Now, <laughs> the reason I wanted to say that is that your, your Twitter game is really strong. It's really strong. And, and what I see you doing. <laughs> what a non sequitur. <laughs> <laughs> I aim to surprise. Oh. <laughs> uh, but wait, 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 what I see you doing is railing, railing against the traditional assets under management model and maybe with a focus on excessive assets under management fees. And I'm just curious, like this is a model that, although you had a light hand on it, uh, you've, you've used, you benefited from. So clearly you see some sort of uh, common ground there, uh, but what's the balance? And, and for, for our audience, maybe many people are actually working with an advisor. Maybe people have never questioned the fees before and they're trying to decide, do I do this myself? Do I need an advisor? How much should I be paying my advisor? Like what, what's your perspective on this? By assets under management, of course, you mean the fee, AUM fee AUM of fee. Uh, 1%. 1% mm-hmm. Okay. So, I, I, of course, 25 years ago, I thought that you know, 1% was an outrageous fee for assets under management when I started my company at a quarter of a percent because I knew how much money I was making and I, I knew what my profits mar- margins were. And I mean, there was no reason to charge 1%. And I was given, I thought, good advice to the clients. So, I, I have always been 
cognizant of what's fair. And I hear this all the time. Uh, I, I got on these arguments with advisors who would say, well, charge what the market will bear, or it's okay to charge high fees because the clients are willing to pay it. And if they're willing to pay it, then the fee must be right. And I, I just never believe that. It's like, we should be setting the fees. We're the ones who are the fiduciaries. We, the advisors, are the ones who have to say, what is fair to us and what is fair to them? And to charge a client who might have, let's say, a million dollars under management, to charge them $10,000 for something that you can make a 50% profit margin on for just charging a quarter of a percent as a small advisor is, is outrageous. I mean, it's not being a fiduciary. It's not being fair to the client. So I have uh, spoken out about that a lot uh, when I was doing the quarter of a percent fee. But now that I'm independent and I'm not doing that model anymore, uh, I'm speaking out against it even more. I just think it we need to be fair with clients about how much advisors get paid. The fee has to be aligned with the amount of work they're actually doing and with the amount of time they're actually spending on this. And if it doesn't take you any more time to manage a, a, a $2 million account than it is to manage a $1 million account, you don't charge twice as much money to manage a $2 million account. It's just not fair. And yeah. so that's, that's where I'm at. No, no. And I want to go, I want to go deeper there because I want to talk about when you said, um, like an advice, there's a value to what the advisor does. There is a value to coming up with a comprehensive financial plan, but the other end of that is that those two get blended and you end up paying for something that's not really happening anymore. Like go, go a little bit farther there with helping people parse out the value that they're getting from, uh, from, from their advisor, from management and from management plus this, this financial plan. Where's the, where's the nuance there? So I view financial planning as a different service than investment management. Investment management is you and I talking about your portfolio, setting an asset allocation, creating a portfolio for you, and then implementing it and maintaining it, giving you reports, talking with you once in a while about how your life may be changing and how the portfolio may be changing. That is worth a quarter of a percent per year AUM fee. If you want a full-blown financial plan where you want me to get into your insurances and your estate plan, uh, you want me to look at uh, where you might want to send your children to college, how to fill out the FAFSA forms, and all of the all of the all this stuff that goes into personal financial planning that is not investment management and not investment related, that is a different service, and that should be charged based on some sort of an hourly fee or maybe a fixed fee. And uh, if you're going to do both as an advisor, then you have two fees, or maybe you just have a flat rate, uh, some percentage, uh, some dollar amount per year that you charge to do everything. But to charge an AUM, a 1% AUM fee for it, it to me, it, it doesn't make any sense. It's way too much money. It's overcharging the clients. Rick, I have a question. So many people in the financial independence community are are DIYers, right? We like to, to do as much as we can by ourselves. And, and I'd be curious what you would say to, to that person who says, oh, I could just invest in VTSAX or some such, or even the Bogleheads three fund strategy and, and just do it myself and save the 0.25%. You know, just a minute ago, you said that that is definitely worth, worth that fee. And, and you know, obviously like 
there's been nothing but just straight intellectual honesty from you, which I, I love. And I'd love to just hear, like, if you were telling that person, like, why is this worth 0.25%? Yeah, I didn't, I didn't say it was worth 0.25%. So let me, let me take that back. I mean, I advocate and I have always advocated do it yourself. Always. All of my books I've talked about do it yourself. They're all for do it yourself. Everything I write on the Bogleheads is do it yourself. Uh, everything is do it yourself. However, if you do not want to do it yourself, if you want to hire an advisor to do it for you, hire an advisor who's going to do it this way, and they need to get paid something. And what's fair is, like I said, a 0.25 fee or some sort of a flat fee. That, so that's where I come. There are some people who cannot do it themselves. Uh, they, their emotions get in the way or they uh, just it's overwhelming for them, or maybe by mandate, because they're managing somebody else's money as a trustee, they can't do it themselves. So they need to hire an advisor. Okay. That's a service. So the advisor charges a service fee to actually manage the portfolio and keep up with it as a fiduciary. And that's a quarter of a percent program there. Um, but do it yourself is what I start with. I assume, or I hope that everybody at least look at doing it themselves. And all of my books are that way. Everything I write is that way. Uh, that's, that's what the whole Bogleheads are about. Uh, but it's perfectly fine if you decide that you don't want to do it and you want to hire an advisor to do it. That's fine. But to make sure you know what the advisor's doing and that the advisor is doing it this way, that's what you're looking for. That's wonderful. Thank you for the clarification. And, and I might've misinterpreted the word fair. I think you did use that before. Uh, so yeah, that makes it a hundred percent clear. So you definitely do advocate clearly the DIY approach. Absolutely. If somebody wants to do it themselves, uh, that, that you make it as simple as possible. That's really what my mission is and has been make investing as simple as possible. You can do it yourself and not, not only can you do it yourself, but make it so simple for people so that if something happens to you and your spouse has to take over managing the portfolio, that it's simple enough that they can do it. And I always try to get both spouses involved in a conversation so that they they both understand that this is not hard it's not managing portfolios is not hard doesn't take a lot of time uh it it is really something that that if if you want to do it yourself you should be able to do that and there are funds that are available out there just like balanced index funds that where you just buy one fund uh where it does it all for you so there's a lot of easy ways to do it yourself you know, I know there are some statistics out there, uh, historical now, kind of dated statistics that basically say that individuals that are trying to manage their own uh, their own accounts fail to keep up with what an advisor could do. And advisors will use some variation of these statistics to say, you need us, you need us. And, and I'm just curious, what's your kind of modern day take on, you know, that variation of that statistic that says you couldn't possibly do this yourself? Yeah, the there, there's no such statistic out there. There's a lot of marketing that says there's a, a statistic out there, but I have yet to find any actual data that says using an advisor somehow gives you a higher rate of return. So, um, no. Okay. It, 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 no. <laughs> That's the best and most succinct answer ever. Yeah, sixty no. percent of statistics are made up on the spot, including this one. Uh, <laughs> uh, all right, awesome. So Rick, with our kind of new daily show format, I, I'd be curious, uh, I want to continue this conversation. There's a whole nother, you know, leg to this stool, this two leg stool in this case, uh, that I want to, that I want to have with you. And I want to go a little deeper into uh, actual portfolios. Would you be willing to continue this conversation with us? Uh, and we'll make a whole nother episode. 
I will, and my fee is the same. <laughs> Got it. All right. Coming up, <laughs> stay tuned. Rick, if someone's listening to this and they want to they follow more of your work, they want to find out what you're doing, what is the best way for someone to find you and connect with you and your content? So I have a website, rickferry.com. I'm also on Twitter, uh, rick underscore ferry. I'm also hanging out at bogleheads.org. I also do the podcast, the Bogleheads on Investing podcast, uh, once a month. And um, I think that's probably enough. <laughs> <laughs> and and Rick, just for clarification out there, your last name is spelled F-E-R-R-I. That is correct. Uh, ferry, like a ferry boat with an I. <laughs> nice. Rick, thank you so much for joining us on the show. This has been a pleasure. Thank you. I hope I've been helpful. And to our audience, if you got value from today's episode and if you've been getting value from the episodes up to this point, just take one second, press the subscribe button on the platform you're listening to this on. Just let the provider know you're getting value from the show. You want to be here when we produce additional content. Maybe you're listening to the show because you realize what you've been doing this entire time won't cut it. You're trying to now get started on your path to financial independence, start building some financial resiliency for yourself and for your family. Do this today. Go to choosefi.com slash start. Uh, we've created a landing page there. It is the easiest way for you to figure out how to dive into our content and get started on your own path to financial independence. All right, my friends, we'll see you next time as we continue to go down the road less traveled.